0: This programme is brought to you by UCL, London's global university. This is going to be a whistle-stop tour. I'm going to talk very briefly about population growth and demographic change, and mainly about progress towards MDGs. And just to let you know, May 25th, 26th, there is a large UCL International Conference being held called Population Footprints, sponsored by the Leverhulme Trust and there are flyers outside. And that will be a two-day conference, and everyone here is welcome to register. This is the demographic transition, which each country hopes to make, taking about a century from high uh, birth rates and death rates down to stable low birth rates and death rates. And as you can see, the fall in death rates precedes the fall in birth rate, which accounts for the increase in population growth. And after both stabilize at a low level, there's an additional population momentum for the increased number of people going into the reproductive pool. And I'm often asked, why are you saving all these babies' lives by quite intelligent people? And what I say is, actually, unless you save babies' lives, you're going to end up with a bigger population growth problem. So the trick is to save babies' lives, get your death rates down, and rapidly follow that with the things that will get population growth down. The latest data from Bongart suggests that the world population is heading up to uh, somewhere between just under 8 billion and possibly up to 10 billion, depending upon a whole number of difficult-to-predict factors. And most of that growth will be in the south rather than the north. Indeed, in the north, population rates in many countries are already falling. And you can see from this slide that there are quite rapid changes in fertility and birth rates. You can see that in Asia and Latin America, over a 40 to 50 year period, you've seen very dramatic declines, almost to the replacement level of 2.1. But Africa remains quite a long way behind that, although it's encouraging that they are now experiencing quite impressive economic growth. Because the three things that we need to get fertility down in addition to dropping their death rates, which is starting to happen, is wealth, education, and then to meet the need for family planning. Um, In Asia, of course, there are problems. Um, We work in Jharkhand and Orissa. And I noted from latest Indian demographic data, in Bihar, the population was the size of Germany 10 years ago. Uh, By the middle of the century, it will be the size of Indonesia. Another northern underdeveloped state, Uttar Pradesh, was the size of Pakistan and will be the size of the European Union. And although there is rapid economic growth in India, uh, this will put great pressure on ecosystems. And in addition, as James Lovelock said last year, a lot of pressure on water supplies and current (coughs) aquifer levels. Um, Africa is a big place. Um, It is the size of virtually all the other continents put together. So we must not be uh, unfair to Africa in the sense that they do have the capacity to absorb a bigger population, uh, although obviously they want to achieve stability as quickly as possible. And indeed, a bigger population would help their economy. Um, These are the eight Millennium Development Goals relating to poverty, education, gender equality, child and maternal mortality, uh, a variety of diseases, the environment, and a global partnership. Helen Clark in her UCL Lancet lecture said this is the most comprehensive set of agreed benchmarks for development progress. And the reason, there are many faults with the MDG goals, but the reason that they were good, in many people's opinion, is that they set some measurable targets. They put an emphasis on the need to measure outcomes. And these are just some of the targets relating to those goals. So how are we doing? This is from The Economist. And it's a summary of some of the review uh, outcomes that were presented to the United Nations a few months back. And it looks superficially to be pretty good, that the poverty target is almost there uh, in terms of people living less than $1.25 a day, that the, uh, we're not doing so well on nutrition, uh, about halfway on children under five, quite good on water access. Primary school enrollment looks impressive and attendance and antenatal care looks okay. Uh, but I think there's more to it than that. So I'd just like to run through some of the MDG goals in relation to the, uh, starting with poverty and hunger. Um, in terms of hunger and food security, Uh, It is true that most countries are more food secure today than they were 25 years ago, with a few exceptions in red. But in the big countries, particularly in India, uh, there is still a very long way to go. Uh, The other problem with poverty is that a new uh, multi-dimensional poverty index produced by Oxford last year on the basis of uh, Amartya Sen's capability approach, suggested an alternative approach to poverty measurement that really throws all of the poverty measures ski wift If you look at Ethiopia or Sierra Leone or India, using that multi-dimensional poverty index, their poverty rates shoot up because many people in those countries still don't have the capability of getting a good education or access to health care. Whereas some others, like Uzbekistan at the bottom, does much better. So uh, definitions of poverty matter. This is a quote from Utsa Patnaik, who's professor of economics in Delhi. The average Indian family of five in 2005 was consuming a staggering 110 kilos less grain per year compared to 10 years ago. A sharp rise in intake for the wealthy minority outweighed by a large decline for the majority. And goes on to talk about calorie intake and a steep decline in protein intake for four fifths of the rural population. So India is shining Uh, in the industrial parts of the country but in many of the rural parts it is not. Another issue that's very topical is microfinance and microcredit, which has always been seen as the way out of poverty for many poor women in rural areas. In fact, two months ago, Andhra Pradesh suspended all microfinance repayments because of criticism of the commercialization of microcredit, uh, with quotes like this that loan officers were going around, from various companies piling loans onto poor women and this pressure was blamed for suicides. When I went to Bangladesh last month, the Prime Minister was actually, probably for political reasons, laying in to Mohammed Yunus, who won the Nobel Prize for this work, saying they were sucking blood from the poor. So this is a highly controversial issue right now, the difference between credit and usury. Um, we have an economic crisis, as you may have noticed, and... It has resulted in a huge collapse of private ODA inflows into poor countries. Uh, I met the Ugandan finance minister last year and I said, "You manage, you're doing well. you're growing. Have you surviving the crisis?" He said, "No. Capital inflows are collapsing in our country." And aid flows also fell quite sharply, and it looks likely that we are not going to achieve our targets. Britain was almost up to its 2010 target. Of course, the Swedes as usual, doing much better. The Italians doing disgracefully. We'll come back to that. Um, and and, and most, I, I'd be very skeptical in the current European economic situation if we get anywhere near to those targets. Uh, and of course, jobs. And interestingly, in many parts of the world, remittances from other areas are critical to an economy. And there is uh, evidence there has been a sharp fall in the number of remittances coming from people who've gone, for example, to the Middle East to get work. And the World Bank estimate increases in poverty and effects on child mortality. And obviously, we've got to wait and see how the economic crisis pans out. Um, food prices. We know this year, through some very curious climate events, that uh, the wheat crop in Russia, uh, failed, that there have been food riots and now a change in government in Tunisia on the back of this. The crops in the USA have been the lowest for 15 years. Uh, Other crops affected as well. There have been bans on food exports in many of the exporting countries. And last month the FAO price index for a basket of food commodities was at its highest ever level. And so we can expect to see a whole number of of further uh, unrest in countries. I think there is a big protest scheduled in Egypt tomorrow. Um, Amartya Sen taught us and almost won his Nobel Prize on the work of analyzing the Bengal famine that occurred under the British Civil Service when they didn't recognize that uh, over the four-year period, 1940 to 44, that although wages went up by about 30%, food grain prices went up by uh, almost fourfold and the collapse in the ability to command food led to about between two and three million people starving to death even though the warehouses were full of food. So starvation and famine is, this was a boom famine uh, and it's not related always to availability to food, it's much more to economic factors and we therefore have to look at the economics of why food prices are so high. And I was very interested that George Soros said in his testament to the U.S. Congress last year, it's an inherent characteristic of financial markets that they're prone to produce bubbles. And by that he means speculation. And we were concerned about this two years ago when there was lots of talk about the food price rises being due to the Chinese propensity to eat more meat. When in fact it seemed that speculation by large investors and hedge funds in food futures on world commodity markets may have contributed substantially to that bubble. And we argued, should family malnutrition be created by economic speculation? There has been no regulation of uh, these investments in food futures. They've increased. The OECD came out with a lame report saying they could find no evidence that speculation affected prices, to which A reply in The Economist three months ago said, a common misconception that futures prices cannot affect spot prices, that's current prices, because speculators do not hoard in the traditional sense. The reality is that for many consumable commodities, spot prices, including oil and corn, are set by long-term contracts based on futures prices, allowing the tail to wag the dog. Uh, And they went on to say, sorry, There's strong evidence that speculation exacerbated the last oil and food bubble and it will fuel the next one unless meaningful position limits are established, i.e., we should regulate and protect commodities from being speculated in. Indeed, the Indian finance minister did that two years ago. Several other finance ministers have done it. Who were the communists that wrote this? It was Sir Richard Branson (laughs) and Michael Masters, director of a hedge fund. I think these guys know what they're talking about. And we should not be speculating in malnutrition. Another aspect of malnutrition that should interest us and is an interest of many people across this university is the relationship between fetal and infant malnutrition and the origin of adult diseases, such as diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And across UCL, many people, some of whom I see in the audience, are working on this subject. And I think it's a very important area. what about education? Um, the MDGs are a bit misleading because they have as their target enrollment ratios. And if we look at India again, I'm sorry to be a bit, I'm not anti-India, I love India by the way, but i have just, uh, they've achieved their target. 95% of children are enrolled in primary school. But when you pick beneath those figures, you find that in 11 of 20 major states, attendance is less than 80%. Uh, In Bihar and in Uttar Pradesh, only 25% of 45% of enrolled children actually attended school. So there's very poor attendance rates. And in terms of achievements, uh, a survey has shown that only about half of children at grade 5 could read at level 2 and only 40% do a simple division. So I think in the future, the MDGs need to look at quality as well as enrollment in education. Gender disparity... And empowerment, Um, I won't say much about this, except to say uh, Rwanda has 56% of its uh, parliament as women. Uh, In Mozambique, it's a disappointing 39%. In Nepal, a more disappointing 33%. In Afghanistan, it's, uh, I think, 27%. And in Pakistan, a shameful 23%. In this country, it's 20%. I went to an NHS conference yesterday on quality and cost organized by this university, I have to say, with 16 speakers of whom 15 were male. Um, When we had our election, 10 men, nine of them Oxbridge, no one from UCL, got into a room and decided the future government of our coalition. I think we have a huge gender empowerment issue in this country and we shouldn't start preaching to others. Um, Child mortality. If you look at the trends in all regions, there is a downward trend on child mortality, going back to 1960. But it's been much slower in sub-Saharan Africa and some parts of South Asia. Uh, Where are they dying? Well, that map, each red dot represents 5,000 child deaths. So you get an idea. Um, People argue about the figures. There's probably about 8 to 9 million children die, but the stillbirths are rarely included. Uh, Many very preventable conditions, malnutrition is an underlying cause and uh, only about 40 countries uh, account for 90% of the deaths. Uh, We're only on track in about 20% of countries, in nearly a third of countries of the target 68 countries, uh, uh, the child death rate hasn't changed or it's actually increased, usually due to the HIV pandemic. What can we do? Well, there's lots of things we can do. There are many interventions that we can roll out. We've been interested across UCL in looking at work as much on the demand side as on the supply side, and I've talked about this elsewhere, so I'll go over it quickly. We we were very interested in looking at just, actually, education and empowerment for women through participatory groups in rural Nepal. We published this six years ago, and most people didn't believe us. Uh, We'd work with groups, Uh, They come up with all kinds of imaginative ideas, making birth kits, setting up money funds, stretcher schemes, playing a game with a a card, uh, a, a card set that enabled them to debate problems in the community and come up with their own ideas about how to deal with it. And to our surprise, we showed a much larger than expected effect on mortality. We haven't actually looked at the impact on fertility yet, and we hope to go back and do that in our populations. So that was very encouraging. No one believed us, so we had to set up six other trials. Um, and I'll just refer to one that reported uh, just a few months ago from Ekjut in eastern India, where actually baseline mortality rates were the highest of any of our populations, uh, a tribal, largely tribal population. And there, uh, Prasanta Tripathi and his team, working with Audrey Prost and others from UCL, showed Actually, in years two and three, a 45% reduction in neonatal mortality, simply by being in a group. There was no change in use of health services. And there were also big reductions in maternal depression rates, um, more than a a halving of the rate of maternal depression. Um, So there's a lot that can be done, and a lot that could be done much more, both on the demand and the supply side for child mortality. What about maternal mortality? This was a guy I passed on the road about 20 years ago in Nepal, and he was an ambulance, and he walked three days with his wife on his back to get to an antenatal appointment, which is more than most people in this room did, uh, and he saved her life. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of women still die. These were the slightly older figures that show very high rates of maternal mortality. If you look at Sub-Saharan Africa, almost no change over 15 years. Uh, The eventual target date for the MDG goals is 2015. Uh, Later figures from Chris Murray's group seem to suggest, but some of us think the data they base it on is a little bit dodgy, um, show that maybe we are seeing falls in maternal mortality. and uh, uh, More than half are clustered in six countries. Um, Tanya Howling from UCL looked at Differentials in healthcare. if you look at the middle one, professional delivery care, it shows the biggest differential between rich and poor households in almost every country, getting access to a safe uh, delivery through a trained birth attendant. Um, one way is to give women money to go to hospital, and they've been doing that in several countries. We evaluate it with Tim Powell Jackson from the London School, the impact of doing this across the whole country in Nepal, first giving cash to women, then to health providers, and then later, when the Maoists came to power, free delivery care. And Tim's analysis showed that you got about a 15% bang for your buck by giving out cash incentives, although the poorer households didn't do as well. Interestingly, when free care was introduced by the Maoists, you seem to get a bigger bang for your buck. But there are various ways of interpreting this data. Um, Another thing that is often people say, well, Bangladesh is seeing its maternal mortality rate fall because of the rise in cesarean section rates. And I never really believed that. And this is the data for the country showing the increase over time, over about 15 years in cesarean section rate, by economic quintile. And you can see that almost all of the rise in cesarean sections occurs in the wealthiest group And indeed, perhaps many of those cesarean sections are unnecessary. Um, So uh, interpreting emergency obstetric care access is, again, quite a difficult thing to do. Um, And all of these differentials, everything we look at has huge differentials, was summed up in a report that Sir Michael Marmot wrote, uh, again from UCL, a WHO commission. I urge you to go and download that from the internet called Closing the Gap, published about 18 months ago. Um, Another bit of work done with our uh, mathematical colleagues, Christina Pargal and others, Um, we we said, look, of course, the safest place to be is a health facility, but that's a difficult thing to do in many poor countries. And we know that over the next decade, in the poorest countries, perhaps 400 million home births will take place. Can we do something about it? We know more than half the births, uh, sorry, more than half the deaths, actually. I think this is an underestimate. Um, are due to two main causes, hemorrhage and sepsis, which can be treated with drugs that you could distribute into the community. And that's what we wondered. So I said to Christina, actually after we talked after one of the IGH symposia, the Global Health Symposia, and I said, would you be able to model three different strategies? And the three strategies are as follows. One, just make sure that the health facilities have those drugs available. And we know that half the facilities don't Um, Secondly, then give them to the health workers, antenatal care on the community. And the third strategy would be to do both of those and get the health workers to give them out to women volunteers in villages. And uh, Christina went away and turned it all into maths. And I checked all the equations and I'm pretty sure they're all right. (laughs) And she came up with this model that was published in the Lancet which did actually suggest that you could save a very significant number of uh, women's lives by getting uh, the drugs out to remote populations. And indeed, that favored the darker green bars, which are the poorest quintiles. Uh, Of course, this raises the big dilemma that we always face in research in developing countries. balance between trying to deliver the optimum versus a second best solution. This is a second best solution, but it might save women's lives. Um, How are we doing on HIV? Well, there has been a very significant increase in access to antiretroviral drugs. Credit where credit's due. I think George Bush should take some credit. He poured money through PEPFAR into this program. And we are seeing continuing and rapid rises in the number of people receiving antiretroviral drugs. Whether this will be sustained and whether the aid funds available is a big question. Um, Another big question is we've got lots of strategies which, if you practice them perfectly, like abstinence and using condoms, have a very big and dramatic effect. The green bars are reducing uh, exposure to HIV, except we're not perfect, we're typical and typical use, and this is the great dilemma between efficacy of interventions and actual effectiveness in communities, means that many of these things don't work. Um, Another problem is political leadership. This is the ex-president of South Africa who was taken in by the AIDS denialists. And this is from Peter Piot, who shows clearly here the broken bar was the age distribution of female deaths in 1997. The red bar is where it went to by 2004, in contrast to Brazil in purple, uh, which did implement a successful uh, anti-AIDS policy. And the estimates are that uh, Mbeki's policies caused the deaths of at least 300,000 women. How are we doing on malaria? Um, Good good news, actually, or better news. Brian Greenwood, who's really the, the guru, Uh, says that he thinks it is a short to medium-term goal to eliminate malaria for an increasing number of countries. There have been dramatic falls in many countries, large increases in coverage of insecticide-treated nets, uh, better drug combinations using uh, the artimezzanine based drugs, and possibly scope for new vaccines. So uh, malaria has come down and may have contributed to Some of the later falls in maternal mortality. TB, this is just to show you what UCL does on TB. There are massive programs going on in TB with Ali Zumla, Tim McHugh, Dean and and others, Uh, and there is a World TB Day quite soon. I can't remember when it is, but let's all celebrate it. Um, And so how much are we spending to invest in mothers and children and family planning? Well, this is from the London School of Health Economists. It's $2.8 billion on child health, many vaccines, 1.23 on maternal and newborn health worldwide. Uh, and there are no figures for family planning. They're going to publish it next time around. The, the highest estimate I've heard is $400 million. This is completely pathetic. It's derisory. Let me show you why. Um, It's about 1% of the Northern Rock bailout. That's the money spent on maternal and newborn health, much less on family planning. It's less than 10% of the Goldman Sachs Bankers bonus pool for 2010. Uh, That's the bonuses for dropping your share price by 65% over four years. Um, And it's also 20% of the wealth of a particular prime minister of a particular European country that didn't honor any of its Glen Eagle's AIDS commitments. And just to even it up, it's a little bit less than the wealth of Asif Zadari, the president of Pakistan. And you don't make that kind of money from a farm in Sindh province. Uh, Finally, environmental sustainability. There are all kinds of things promised with the MDGs, none of which will be met. we have an urban future and a planet of slums. I'm going to say nothing about this. David Osborn, who's sitting in the audience, is working with, uh, under the chairmanship of Professor Yvonne Riding of UCL, on a, a Lancet Commission on Healthy Cities, which will be published, I think, later this year. And I think we should uh, follow that up with uh, another lecture like this. Um, I just want to touch on climate change. I'm really sorry about this. but. Um, The news is not great. We claimed two years ago in the UCL Lancet Commission, it's the greatest global threat of the 21st century. Everything that I've read since then makes me more convinced of that. Uh, We are transforming our atmosphere. We're now at levels of CO2 that haven't been seen for millions of years. And our temperature is going up. We're only at the beginning of this process. We're about 0.8 of a degree above uh, uh, 150 years ago. Um, There are all kinds of scary tipping points in relation to uh, Arctic sea ice loss, losing the tundra, releasing uh, methane, uh, changing the monsoon, etc., etc. We know that the poorest will be the first affected, and they're the ones that have contributed least in terms of carbon footprint, uh, and loss of life will be much greater where populations are vulnerable. However... There are huge health co-benefits if we mitigate and move to a low-carbon lifestyle. Uh, Less obesity, less stress, less heart attacks, less anxiety. I mean, even I've started cycling, so if I can do it, anyone in this room can. Uh, This was a very good series in The Lancet from the London School, Andy Haynes and colleagues. uh, Again, that you can download for free. Um, The data on crop yields is a bit scary, actually. The Russian wheat crop experience this year shows us that actually crops are much more sensitive to temperature rises than previously people had thought, and some of the modeling is quite scary about food shortages later this century, and John Beddington, our chief scientist, has just issued a report suggesting this could be much sooner than that, so that's scary. Um, Obama thinks there will be climate wars, and there are lots of historical examples of this, and lots of points of tension these days, although the economists said that actually there aren't many facts to support this. And of course, you know, a lot of this could be dealt with by diplomacy. But I was at a meeting at the Royal College last night where uh, the Royal College of Physicians are planning a conference with, uh, with the security people from the military about this, because the military are extremely worried about the implications of climate change. Uh, The unknowables of loss of biodiversity and how that may affect our risk of future vector-borne diseases. uh, As the WHO say, the the Donald Rumsfeld, unknown unknowns. Uh, And the commonest cause of extinction is co-extinction of species. You know, if we lose our bumblebees, uh, that (laughs) takes out a third of our crops. Um, And George Cuvier, the paleontologist, has documented nearly 200 years ago uh, the the five or so mass extinctions that have taken place, almost all of them climate-induced. And our friend James Lovelock uh, thinks that we are going to go that way. He thinks the carrying capacity of the planet is going to drop to about a billion, uh, possibly this century. Not everyone agrees. But I've been getting a little bit more nervous. I'm going to finish on this in time for questions about sea level. This was given to me by Atik Rahman, who's on the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change. And he said to me, look, I, I want to show you what happens in Bangladesh if we get a meter sea level rise, which will happen in about 40 years in Bangladesh. We work in Dhaka in the middle. Uh, and he said, this is what happens. Uh, Dhaka becomes a seaside resort. So, you know, we're, Bangladesh are on queue with a meter to lose about 20% of their surface area. And obviously, that will have population migration effects. And earlier effects, because there are already concerns about salinity of drinking water in the southern states of Bangladesh. Uh, But I think it's much more worrying than that. Based on paleoclimate observations, we know that sea level, even in uh, two uh, interglacials ago, they were about half a degree warmer and there was five meters of sea level rise. When you go up to three degrees, it's about 25 meters. Once you go above four or five degrees, it's 75 meters. UK policy is to keep the risk of a four degree rise this century below 1%. That's Adair Turner's stated policy, chair of the climate committee. Um, last year, there was a conference in Oxford where almost all climate scientists think that that's where we're heading now, four degrees. And uh, more worrying is, this is what happens to England, by the way, with seven meters, massive. I mean, London will be taken out, and massive effects. It's really the end of geography as we know it across the world. That's with seven meters. And there are serious climate scientists saying that we've underestimated levels of sea level. The consensus has been one meter this century. Um, That's what happens in about 300 years' time. I hope you don't, anyone anyone from Norwich? (sighs) I'd sell up, John. Get out whilst you can. Um, And the reason one's getting more worried, I'll finish on this. This is work from Duncan Wingham from UCL, geophysicist who plays around with satellites. They measured the loss of uh, the Pine Island Glacier in the Antarctic over a decade. And they showed that the rate of volume loss quadrupled in that time. So they don't think this is going to be a linear relationship. It depends on the doubling time. And Jim Hansen has worked out, with a doubling time of 10 years, which is conservative by that estimate, we end up with 5 meters this century. Only about a meter up to 2,070, and then an exponential effect. So I hope I've uh, depressed you all thoroughly. I won't say anything about MDG-8 because they didn't do anything about it and I'll just leave you with this. If you want to read a review, an excellent review in my view by Jeff Varga and colleagues about the MDGs, (laughs) um, this is the tetralemma we face. How to achieve growth and equity to bring people wealth and education, to do it in the context of not very good democracies and then ultimately to achieve sustainability that stops us all drowning. Thank you. Thank you very much, Anthony. Yes, we do have some time for some questions. Um, so I throw it open to you now.
1: This one here. <coughs> uh, Thanks very much. That was a fantastic lecture. I've learned an awful lot. but. Um, Underlying every problem you've outlined, of course, is the question of population growth. And that was brought out by the chief scientist on the radio yesterday, as well as me, as it happens. Um, The question, really, that I have for you is, Professor Costello, how much do you think that the relative derisory expenditure on family planning assistance derives from the fact that the issue of population growth, which underpins all those problems in terms of both mitigation and adaptation, has been due to the marginalization of population by defining it as an issue of reproductive health care, instead of defining reproductive health care as the solution to a vastly wider global problem of interest to finance ministries, heads of government, agriculture, uh, planners, and so on. Everybody is, should be concerned about population growth, but they won't notice bleats um, for more money in terms of sexual and reproductive health.
0: No, I, I absolutely agree with you, and I, and I think um, You know, the the Bush government has a lot to, they did well on AIDS, but they have a lot to answer for in terms of the drop in family planning attention and, of course, they were were really hammering those agencies that had anything to do with abortion. Mm -hmm. Just one other thing to say is, uh, on your point, there's, there's a paper just come out in Proceedings at the National Academy of Sciences on trying to estimate the demographic contribution to future carbon emissions. And if we can do well on population, we could reduce by future emissions by up to a third. But we must be careful not to put the blame on Niger and Kenya. Uh, we need to say it's absolutely about us. It's absolutely about an integrated strategy that deals with wealth education, child mortality, and family planning as an integrated whole. And I hope, I hope you'll be coming to the, the uh, symposium in May. Yeah.
1: Over
0: here. Uh, Lenny Street MSC Conservation Course. Uh, from the from the actually my studies that I'm doing at the moment on on conservation, many of the targets that are being set for biodiversity have actually had to be adjusted from 2010 to 2015. Am I right in saying, Anthony, what I called that the targets, the Millennium Development Targets, are for 2015? Yeah. And uh, what sort of position are we in as achieving these targets by 2015, or do you see these targets needing to be extended into the future? Thank you very much. Uh, To be honest, I'm not very good on biodiversity targets. and I don't think they paid very much attention to them. There has been a big report from the UN last year, I think, on progress with biodiversity, and almost all the news is bad. Uh, But I think some of the measures, like immortality, are a problem. Uh, But everything I hear from the people I talk to, and I expect you will know much more about this than, than me, that this is a bad scene. Uh, What we've been interested in is how biodiversity affects health, and there are various ways. There's a thing called the dilution effect, that the more uh, diversity you have to carry vectors of disease or carry the diseases, you're less likely to get infected. And if you reduce that diversity, you're more likely to have transmission. There's quite a lot of interesting experiments to show that. Um, I know it's something you kind of mentioned before but not so much today about uh, how we can't tell developing countries not to produce carbon because they have to in order to develop but equally that will lead to future problems so how would you address the fact that we can't dictate policy on development because it's just grossly unfair when we've been emitting it for so long but equally there does need to be a big reduction? yeah well I, th- I think there's a difference i mean clearly that the the huge countries that matter are china and india because china's already now the largest emitter in the world it's overtaken the united states and they are well aware of this in fact my friends that i spoke to last night who were at the cancun negotiations say that the chinese are ahead of the game compared to the americans they're investing more in green technology. They recognize this as more of a problem. They're going to do it their own way. They're not going to be told what to do by the West. But they're ahead of the game. I think America is deeply depressing because they are caught up, you know, 49 out of 50 of the latest Republicans elected to whichever chamber it was, uh, were our climate skeptics. I mean, not climate, I think we should remove the word skeptics, as Chris Rappi says, climate denialists. So they don't just don't accept. And there is a major cultural problem, I think, in the United States politically, and that's got to be addressed. But for African countries where you've got, I mean, I think the, the carbon emissions of public buildings in the UK are greater than that of Kenya. So I think we have to get balanced here about, you know, I think the, the equilibration point is two tons per head, isn't it, of CO2. So, you know, a lot of countries are down in the point twos who could come up, but we've got to get all the others down. Whether that's politically feasible is a huge question mark, and it may be that we need science and innovation to solve this problem. I'm being asked to treat that as the last question now, so uh, I only means to thank Anthony very much indeed for a very well-informed, very engaging and very interesting lecture. Thank you very much, Anthony. To find out more about UCL, please visit us at iTunes dot ucl dot ac dot uk